Today is Sunday, September 11th, 2016, and this is episode 170 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hey, Jerry. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Sorry we missed last week with Labor Day and Dragon Con and travels and all that jazz. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a busy weekend, and then, uh, then I had to travel the rest of the week, so yeah, we just didn't get a chance to connect. That's what happens when you're such an important executive like you are these days. Yeah, clearly. You know, podcast leader in demand. That's, that's right. But uh, but it is September 11th, which is kind of an important date here in the U.S., uh, I guess around the world too, for 15 years since the terrorist attack. So that's kind of a somber thought. And, of course, our thoughts go out to all those affected. And It's crazy. You know, it's kind of crazy to me that three more years – People will vote who weren't even born on September 11th. Yes, yes. That's... My uh, my my kids, um, you know, well, especially my oldest was telling me. I think he's the he's the um, um, really the first generation that doesn't that they've taught that doesn't really remember it. Wow. Hmm. Well, for another show, I suppose, but uh, but it is September 11th. But we will still. Try to keep it entertaining and light, but did want to at least acknowledge the important day. So, anywho. Indeed. So, uh, before we get started, just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers, and unless it's just coincidence. <laughs> but for, you know, at least, I don't know, low seven figures, we'd be happy to represent your opinion. That's right. <laughs> Everybody has a price. That's true. So, uh, so we have a, a, a fun basket of stories this evening. The first of which, <laughs> the first of which comes from softpedia.com and the title is retiring sysadmin fix cyber attack to get away with data theft. So an unnamed sysadmin at an unnamed company. And apparently in an unnamed country. In an unnamed country <laughs> uh, was Preparing to retire, however, he uh, he apparently had aspirations that his retirement savings could not handle, in, including buying a, a a seaside home somewhere in a different country. So, you know, obviously being the the intrepid sysadmin that he did, they didn't let that stop him. And uh, I guess it's, it's a little unclear how this happened, but somebody approached him about uh, purchasing data. Uh, illegally purchasing data from the company he worked for. And so this person, uh, just prior to his retirement, concocted a plan where he um, he basically decided that he was going to steal the data and use, uh, basically do that under the cloak of a web defacement. And so he, he went apparently across the border and uh, and ran a vulnerability scan tool against the website of the companies and and then drove back um, apparently logged in to to the uh, administrator console 
defaced the web page, uh, said that, that it was defaced as a, uh, as a protest against the company's support of globalization, and then uh, informed his superiors that the site had been defaced and recommended that they rebuild it right away, which they actually did. And uh, apparently he made a fatal mistake and he contacted his, um, the, the hosting company. And the hosting company, I, this part is not entirely clear to me how the hosting company circled back with the uh, the employer, but the hosting company pointed out that the the defacement had actually happened through the administrator portal, which was uh, locked down to only IP addresses. And it was accessible from only IP addresses at the company, and uh, you know, and a few other a few other odds and ends. Ultimately, when the when the guy was confronted, he had he admitted that that uh, he did it and why he did it. And um, the you know the the thing that I, I, this is becoming more and more problematic, I think. As IT becomes more and more commoditized, and the the skills required are, are becoming more more commonplace, the, the administrators, I, we we have to think about them as a potential source of. I mean, even security people ourselves are a potential source of risk, both intentionally and unintentionally. Yes. When we start looking at. Uh, ransomware or key loggers or screen loggers that might get on a system unintentionally could disclose a ton of information if a system in were targeted by that. Exactly. Yeah. And this this one's interesting. I, I'm, I'm impressed that the company was smart enough to bring in an outside consultant to look at it and that they were willing to consider the possibility this was an insider as opposed to just kind of sweeping this under the rug and moving on, which right. was nice. Uh, you know, they made a couple of sort of uh, assumptions in here that I'm not sure I completely agree with, which was they suspected that this was an insider because the commercial vulnerability scanning tool that the uh, sysadmin used while he was, quote unquote, out at a security conference on the website was expensive and hacktivists couldn't afford that. Well, let's not be so hasty to make that determination. Uh, and it came from a public IP as opposed to Tor, which is 99.9% of people who come from Tor. Well, again, I think that's a strong assumption. Yeah. <laughs> You're assuming two things, that all hacktivists are smart and skillful and all hacktivists are poor. Uh, I, it only would use open source tools. Uh, it's, you know, you think if an hacktivist is using Tor, they couldn't go find a hacked copy of that particular expensive vulnerability management tool with a broken key or something from a torrent site. Well, you know, also think about the, if you think about it in terms of Venn diagrams, what does the overlap of quote hacktivists and corporate IT security people look like? Indeed. And I often look at things through the view of Venn diagram. I am awesome at parties for that. Let me tell you. I bet you are. It's true. Indeed. But interesting, I mean, and, and this is one where, you know, going back to your point, we do have to start keeping in mind, uh, you know, not that we haven't, but, but it reinforces the possibility of insiders. Now, this is pretty interesting because this is a money-motivated attack. Right. And what's kind of interesting by this is that apparently somebody approached him for this information. And this is kind of downplayed in, in this article. But, you know, as he was getting ready to retire it, um, he received an offer to sell the corporate data 
from somebody, which is interesting because now we're back towards something being initiated probably in some sort of corporate espionage or you know corporate competitive landscape asking for this information. So I wonder how often that's happening. And you know, if you've got some disgruntled employees, especially in IT, it makes them more susceptible. This goes back to sort of the psychology behind various foreign intelligence agencies or even our own trying to approach uh, useful assets with either money or women or whatever it is that they think their weakness is to get information. Absolutely. So I thought that was kind of an interesting thing that didn't get a lot of play in this article, but yeah, they, you know. did, they didn't say really anything more about it, you know, yeah. whether it was this person seeking it out, just that he was, somebody had offered him some money. It does seem awfully coincidental, but you know, we just, we just don't know. So the, the next, but, Oh, go ahead. I just say it's, it's one thing, you know, to keep in mind when, if you're going through layoffs or you're going through downsizing or you've got a lot of disgruntled people, it might be time to keep a sharper eye out for this sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of keeping a sharper eye out for things, the, the next story we have is... Wow, that was a hell of a segue. You are a true professional. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm taking podcast classes at night. <laughs> Really? Is that from the same folks who do Hooked on Phonics? Yeah, although ITT just went out of business, so I'm not sure what I'm going to do now. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's that's a whole other story that's kind of ugly. Yeah, so uh, so anyway, the, the story here is that the, uh, the, the House of Representatives uh, Oversight Committee, uh, their, their official title or the official title of this report is Committee on the o- Oversight and Government Reform, U.S. House of Representatives, the title is The OPM Data Breach, How the Government Jeopardized Our National Security for More Than a Generation. <laughs> what do they really think? <laughs> yeah, wow. it's um, it's a 241-page document of uh, of kind of un, unfettered <laughs> unhappiness. <laughs> so we're going to spend the next five hours of the podcast talking yes. through this document. We'll give you some time to go get popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. But it's um, it's big. It's a big... PDF. Now, now to be clear, this is this is the the main report that was put out by the government on what happened with the OPM hack. So there's always politics involved with these sorts of things, but nonetheless, it's ugly. Yeah, I mean, they, there doesn't seem to be. I, I've read, I haven't read all of it, but I've read the majority of it, and it does seem to be relatively factual at least it's it's in, it's it reads as if it's factual not as uh you know the, this person was bad or or incompetent or whatever but um the the interesting thing in this this report showed uh aspects of this breach that I really didn't understand uh, up until now so for instance there were actually two distinct breaches uh and and they kind of overlap in time the first breach happened in 2013 and 2014 and happened over a, a pretty protracted period of time and was detected by U.S. CERT. U.S. CERT detected someone exfiltrating data. Upon analysis, they figured out that it was security manuals for some of OPM's systems. And uh, that didn't really go anywhere. So, so uh, 
the uh, the OPM and U.S. CERT built a plan to evict this uh, this adversary, and uh, unbeknownst to them, as they were um, as they were building that plan and actually executing the eviction, uh, someone else, possibly the same group, uh, there's there's actually some some attribution in this report. Uh, you know, take it for what it's worth, right? They the, the report indicates it's two different groups, but there's um, a, a pretty clear assertion that the two were working together, that the second breach was uh, using the data obtained from the first breach. So anyway, the second breach happened while the first breach response was underway uh, and was not detected in the, uh, you know, in, in the investigation and response to the first breach. So they continued on, the attacker, I should say, continued on with access for quite some time. Uh, and in three distinct campaigns, they stole the background check data, which I think we all remember. It's the, uh, was it the SF86? Is that the right number? It's the, um, it's the, 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 the background forms, right? Anybody right. So when, when you're applying for uh, you know, security clearance and, and, and whatnot, and you fill out all that information and includes all of your friends' information, all of your neighbors, your employers, oh, and things like uh, fingerprints. Yeah, well, they, they didn't get the, th- the fingerprints until the third round. So the, right. the, the second round... Uh, My the, bad, they all blend together after a while. The second round of, of data theft was the, um, was actually all of the employment records. Right. And then the third batch was the fingerprint data. And uh, what was interesting, though, from a timing perspective, that, that each one of those breaches appeared to be, or at least according to the report, appears to be somewhat distinct and happened over a you know, pretty extensive period of time. Uh, now, what was, what was I, I'd say the, the, there's a couple of really damning things in here. Um, you know, the first off is that the report points out that the the inspector general of OPM apparently since 2005 had been banging the drum about how horrible security was at OPM and how far behind they were other parts of the government and uh for instance OPM had not implemented two-factor authentication uh which you know ended up being kind of the 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 critical factor here right the the way that at least the second uh, the second actor broke in was through compromising a, a third-party contractor, Keypoint, who was a, a an outsourced background check company, and uh, that th- that company admitted that one of their employees had been compromised, had their credentials stolen. That permitted uh, the attacker to get into the OPM network with an unauthorized set of credentials. Uh, they used a lot of different, the, the attackers used a bunch of different tactics, apparently, <clears throat> including such uh, novelties as registering a couple of domains like uh, opmsecurity.org and opmtraining.org under the names of uh, the, uh, uh, you know, Steve Rogers, who's Captain America, and Tony Stark, who is um, Iron Man. Well, it depends on what iteration of the Marvel Universe you're looking at. In certain comics, they are no longer those characters they've moved on and other people have assumed those oh sorry go on <laughs> wow well you know that that changes everything i just i just want to be accurate 
So um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go back to reading my comic books now. Sure. So uh, anyway, along I guess as, as all of this is going on, OPM it seems like is is starting to come to grips with how significant the the problems are, and they bring in Silence to uh, to give a demo of their product, and, and of course they do. And Silence apparently finds all sorts of of malware and helps them do some cleaning up. And then they also bring in another company called, um, uh, their product is named Cypher, C-Y-F-I-R. I forget the name of the company right now. And, uh, and they found a ton of malware as well and also helped in uh, responding. Now, one of the things the, uh, the, the re- this report points out is that it's actually not, it, it's against the law for a federal agency to accept um, voluntary support from a third party uh, to perform services, right? It has to Wait. be done under has to be done under contract. So they have to pay for it in some way. They have to pay for it in some way, okay. but they didn't. Wait, whose support did they get they, that wasn't paid for? This uh, this company that makes Cipher. It's um, gosh, I forget the name of the company. So it wasn't a POC of some type. They were. Well, they had brought they no they had brought this company in to do a POC, okay. and in the process right. of doing the POC, you know, think about this company is or this organization is completely compromised with malware. Apparently, right. like everything is compromised. So they so they they're doing a POC on their live environment, and they're finding malware everywhere. And so they said, "Hey, can you come help us clean this up?" Ah, so it went past the actual POC. Because right. here, here's the interesting you could say a POC is kind of like free services because you're testing right. a technology. No, they had they helped, they helped, they asked this company to come in and help perform some okay, some cleanup and they spent a couple of weeks on site. Um and then uh, then there's some allegations about how the the leadership of the OPM really did not accurately characterize what was going on when they testified under oath in front of Congress. And you know that's that's there's actually a lot of there's a lot of complexities there based on the time frame but you know one of the um you know one of the things that that came up was that the initial the initial breach back in 2013 and 2014 as I mentioned stole some security manuals and in a early report the CISO characterized that as oh just some outdated documentation that was stolen and then later they uh, they had to admit that uh, well it was old documentation however uh, because the systems were so old no one knew how to use it they needed those documents in order to figure out how to, how to steal the data so uh um, yeah it's it's a it's a really not a good look I, I to me this is a fantastic read from a a defender's perspective, they have a, a really extensive list of recommendations and none really shockingly surprising, right? But kind of good reminders. And, you know, the, I think the, the the thing that was, was most interesting to me was that OPM had all this stuff available to them, right? It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't novel. It was just that they, they didn't do it. Right. And and uh, they you know in in uh, in the government in the U- you here in the U.S. you have to operate your systems under uh, I think it's called a AO it's a 
forget the name of it. Anyway, it, it's a certification to operate your IT environment. And their, theirs, most of their environment had not had that or it had lapsed, um, which, you know, I, to, to some extent, you can certainly criticize the CIO and the CISO and maybe even the head of the, the OPM. But at some point, you have to start turning the spotlight higher than that, right? Especially if you have your, your inspector general for a decade banging the drum saying, you know, they're out of control. It's, you know, something really bad is going to happen. They're not properly protecting their data. They're not keeping up with, with, with the the threats. They're not uh, acting as other government agencies are, you know, at some point, doesn't it become the responsibility of somebody higher than that after, you know, the, (laughs) the third or fourth year of the same, the same kind of report. I mean, it, it seems like there's a lot of fault here. And yeah, there's clearly a, an oversight failure here somewhere. There was no consequence right. for this sort of problem to continue to go on and on and on and on and on. It just sort of... Yeah, exactly. It seemed like they could just keep doing it. Right, right. And uh, and that, that I think that's, to me, that's the most uh, the most significant thing. And, and, and also the thing that doesn't really seem to be prominent in the report, at least so far as I've read, uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of, of discussion about the, the failure of that oversight. And they talk a lot yeah. about the failure of the CIO and the CISO and, and and the more technical aspects, but they really don't address, the at least that I've been able to, to read yet, they don't address the failure to to properly exercise governance over the you know the, the whole thing. I mean, that was the whole purpose of the the, the inspector general. I mean, if, if you're if you're not going to pay attention to the reports, why why do we have them? So yeah, I, but this feels like a very common problem in a lot of organizations that you know either they're overworked, overwhelmed, don't know what they're doing. You know, it's easy to point out problems. How do you fix them? You know, were they not given? The, the budget were they not given the people were they not given the you know the right skill set were, were the leaders just sweeping under the rug did they just not even truly understand I mean I, we can go into any business in the world and say okay these are some gaps you have in security and that business can go oh yeah yeah but but let's so let's let's play off that for a second mm-hmm. and, and now we'll have to consider the public company. Right concept, right? So, in a public company, at least here in the U.S., you you have to have uh, an audit committee, which is a subset of the board of directors, and the, there's an internal audit function of the company who reports functionally to that audit committee. And and, and how often do you think that they're being completely independent and not in any way being influenced by the reality of the budget situation of the company? Well, I, I believe that the reports are. I guess here's my here's where I was going. Right. Mm-hmm. So so the internal audit team is, and we've we bemoan this, you know, frequently. The internal audit team are usually relatively, um, you know, on their own planet in terms of what they're they're looking right. for. And if anything, they're they're usually more critical than they should be. And um, you know, I, my. My expectation is that the the message that gets reported up is 
is often probably relatively critical. And it might, I guess my point is if there is a, a problem with resource allocation and whatnot, it's the, in the, in the context of a public company, you know, that, that should be the board of directors saying, you know, Mr. or Ms. CEO, it is your responsibility to right that wrong. Right. And if you're not going to do it, then we're going to find someone else who will. Sure. If the board cares. If the board cares, that's right. And if they don't, then I guess that's a different problem. Now, I don't know what the I don't know where where on the continuum this particular situation was. I, I just don't know. But well, and, and the question I have is, you know, you're sitting in OPM at at the level to make these decisions. Maybe a way. What's the consequences? Yeah, and I I do think, and we've talked about this in the past. I I really do get the impression that OPM really did not have a handle on the criticality of their data. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's it's. I think it's one of those things that only made sense in hindsight. And maybe there were people in, you know, in the government that you know that, that could have known or did know. But clearly, the people in o, in OPM, or at least the leadership in OPM didn't have a, a cogent understanding or, or they weren't creative enough to understand, you know, what the strategic importance of that data was. Right. Which, by the way, I think is a very common problem throughout most organizations. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure, by the way, they probably felt awesome that, you know, hey, our, uh, you know, our background checks are stored in a different system than in, uh, than our employment information. And that's stored in a different system than our fingerprints. And so, you know, What's the likelihood that all three of them will get compromised at the same time? <laughs> uh, apparently pretty good. Yes. Well, not the same time, but nearly the same time. So I, I think the takeaway for me is that this is a great example of not a failure of technology, but a failure of leadership and a failure of decision-making. Yes. Which is a really tough place for a good security person to be. So then if you're in that situation, you're a good security person – What's your morale going to be like? You're going to leave, most likely. Right. And by the way, there was, the, in one of the recommendations, and I know this has come up quite a bit, one of the recommendations from this report is to, um, it's kind of interesting too, because the OPM is involved in this this process. But you know, in, in, here in the U.S., there are limitations on how much uh, government employees can be paid. And there's a lot of discussion about how the government is... Um, is not competitive salary-wise with private industry, uh, particularly in the area of cybersecurity skills. And, right. And apparently, there is a um, there is a mechanism where they they can pay a you know a higher salary, but it takes some you know some additional exception approvals. Part of which is owned by OPM itself. So kind of kind of interesting. Uh, but they they did encourage gov- the government to take a, a stronger look at how to. Um, how to pay better market rates to attract better talent. So interesting stuff. So moving on to our next story, which comes from uh, CNN.com. And the title here is uh, 5,300 Wells Fargo employees fired over 2 million phony accounts. You know, this is not typically the story that kind of story that I would cover, but the sheer scale of this is just it's incredible. So the story is that uh, since 2011, uh, 
over 5,000 Wells Fargo employees had been running a, you know, effectively a fraud scheme, right? Where they were opening up uh, checking accounts and bank accounts and credit cards for other uh, legitimate bank customers. And you know, without these customers actually knowing that those accounts have been created and they were they were literally or, tr- or in some cases saying no to that account and the person creating it anyway right right yeah and and that that ended up uh, with fees being charged to the you know, to the customers and ap- apparently it, they, they don't talk a lot about you know the incentive program but it, it sounds like there were bonuses and uh, incentive compensation tied to um, to fees paid and accounts opened, so I, I can I can only think that you, you can't get the fifty three hundred people. I mean that's a that's not like you know two, two people. It's not like an office space style scam. I mean that that's that's like a small town. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> and and so you know, a couple of thoughts that immediately come to mind for me is that compensation drives behavior. And I saw this so often when I you know, worked in sales. If you tie compensation to a certain goal, that will drive behavior. And what you have to watch for is, will people then start violating ethics to get to that level of behavior, to, to get to that goal? Yes. And you know, some have alleged that leadership had to have known about this being this widespread. I don't know. I can't say yes or no on that, but... You know, this is a great example, and we where I see this tie back into information security is getting through compliance and audits. Well, that's exactly the the point I wanted to raise. We have yeah. to be really careful when we design programs that have incentives tied to them, because you know we people they're just hardwired to figure out how to how to game it. Yep. You know, I, I on Twitter I told the story. I won't mention company names, right? My, but my wife used to work for a company, uh, an auto dealer, or sorry, an auto manufacturer, who uh, uh, they had this this suggestion program, and uh, the the idea was that if you know if you saved a couple of dollars per car, that that resulted in millions and millions of dollars per year in savings to the company, and so they the 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 automaker. Uh, ran a suggestion program where employees, you know, particularly those on on the assembly lines, could make recommendations on how to, you know, on cost savings ideas. And uh, you know they thought they were pretty clever because they had, you know, they made sure that you know you couldn't, an employee couldn't uh, claim cost savings on something that they created themselves, which makes sense, right? But what they didn't count on was engineers and production people working together <laughs> where where the engineers would add some component some you know useless component and then somewhere down the line uh, a a production worker would come along and say you know that part really doesn't make sense and they would submit a a suggestion to remove it and you know save save you know 5 or 10 dollars per car and then you know they they would get a significant amount of money. I mean, there were some people who were making hundreds of thousands of dollars off of this program a year, and then uh, you know, s- allegedly split it back with the, uh, you know, the the uh, the person who designed it in, and and it, it just points out that there are 
perverse incentive programs and and it does pervade everything and we have to be really careful and cognizant that when we create you know, security programs in particular that have some incentive component tied to it you know you've got to be you've you've got to be careful on how you make sure that it's not being abused and, and you know it, it's very situational there was another great story someone pointed out to me on twitter it was the indian cobra uh, story. I don't know if you've, if you've ever heard of this one, but it was a long time ago. I don't remember exactly when, but there was a there was a snake problem in India, so they put a bounty on snakes. So if you killed snakes, you you know you you could bring the the dead snakes, I guess, to the city you know, city hall or whatever, and, <laughs> and they would give you money right. per per dead snake. Well, sure. what, what these people would do is they would catch them and they would breed the snakes. <laughs> <laughs> Competition drives behavior, man. And, and so we, you know, we just have to be really, really careful. And so, you know, when, when you think about it in terms of like, uh, I know there's been some discussions about, uh, you know, providing incentives or awards for people who who uh, um, detect phishing emails and things like that. And you know, you you have to be really careful about about the incentives that you're that you're creating and uh, anyway that there, there's lots of examples of how this can go wrong but um you know I, I i do think that at the end of the day you know one of the things we have to be aware of and kind of this this story points out is you know it, it it's really all about mitigating um you know, mitigating fraud and mitigating risk and in the, they just didn't do it here. <laughs> no, yeah. To their credit, allegedly, they hired a, a they hired a, an investigator to come in and uh, and unravel this. But it's really not clear if they did that after the um, the, the Consumer Financial Protection Board uh, got involved or not. I, I that's not really really clear. But you know what? They're going to have to pay. I think it's a hundred and almost two hundred million dollars in fines, and then yep. a couple million bucks in restitution. It's a big, big, big fine. So, and it's huge. But uh, you know, I think there's some interesting takeaways here for for our world too. Yeah, and uh, it's something to keep an eye on. And you know, I see this behavior all the time in in many, many different companies. Where, oh boy, the auditors are coming in. Let's let's make sure we can get past the audit. <laughs> That's right. Right. As opposed to, if we really cared about being compliant it wouldn't be a big deal yeah but yep. anyway so um, moving on to our next story this one comes from ieee spectrum and the title is facebook engineers crash data centers in real world stress test i love this story love it, it is a, it is a great story it it kind of goes um into the whole chaos monkey style thinking that we've talked about in the past but you know basically the 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 deal here is that in the wake of Hurricane Sandy, uh, Facebook realized that some of their data centers, some of their their major data centers, were in the were in the path, and they got to thinking, well, gosh, what would happen if, you know, if, uh, if one of our main data, major data centers, went down, you know, and and uh, so they 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 put together a program to, you know, put together a plan. Uh, to improve their resilience so they could suffer something like that. But you know, obviously you don't know if it's going to work until you test it. And so the, 
the novel thing here is that they kind of swallowed hard and uh, and shut down one of their data centers. Uh, and, and in fact, it was apparently during the uh, the last um, uh, was it the the major soccer tournament tournament, right? Um, forget the name of it. Damn. The World Cup? World Cup. I wanted, to say, I, wanted to, I wanted to say U.S. Open, but that's tennis. God. I'm getting old. It's, it's tough getting old, I know. Anyway. Sorry. So, um, so yeah, the, 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 I thought this was a great story because it kind of points out that you really don't understand if your program is going, especially your resilience program, and, and to some extent your security program, uh, is effective until you actually test it. And, and test it, you know, in real world circumstances, like shut off the data center. Yeah. What really happens? Actually test it. Right. And, you know, Delta learned this lesson the hard way recently. Yes. Yeah. As did Southwest and United. Yeah, many others. Yeah, I'm not picking on Delta. but <laughs> Right. Uh, and I think many organizations who have this assumption around our DR plan or whatnot works fine, but have they ever truly actually real world had the guts to just throw a switch. Right. And uh, th- there's a there's an interesting discussion in here about how uh, um, the, the, the head of this program was meeting with someone and, you know, they were, they had gotten to the point where they were ready to test and, uh, the, you know, this, this, what, the, they were having a conversation and the person said, well, you're not actually going to do it, right? Right. <laughs> you're not that insane, are you? <laughs> and uh, in fact, they did. So uh, I... I really think, you know, especially this. This is much easier to do early on, right? When you're when you're a younger company and you have a smaller infrastructure, if you build things from the ground up with the understanding that you're going to do this, you you have the chaos monkey concept where there is no net. You know, you're not making an assumption that your data center want. You know, if you have multiple data centers, that they're going to be up. You know, they're you're going to you're going to test, you're going to turn, turn one of them off. And the expectation is that things have to continue running. And that drives, speaking of incentives, right? That drives a different kind of behavior when we're architecting the the environment and, and developing the software. And I think that's the right way to go about it. And unfortunately, it, it takes a lot of management commitment because it's going to be more expensive, yeah, you know, as I was reading this story, I was like, wow, that is such the right way to do it. But I really think very few organizations have the, the resources, the time, the funding, and the management support to actually build that and do it. Because you need a lot of free time with your people to actually be able to get to that level of maturity. Yes. And I think most organizations are just barely keeping their head above water with everything they have going on. Right. So you need to be really small or really big. It seems like, from a from a funding standpoint, to be able to do this, so small, net new, architect it from the beginning, or really big, where you've got enough people, time, energy, and management buy-in to to you know re-architect into this way. But man, this is if you really want to do it right and you really care, this is the type of stuff that you should be able to do. Yeah, but it's expensive, very it, expensive. It is, and and I think as you know, as time marches on. Companies, and this is just my my view, right? It, it it is very difficult, and we all know this, right? We have legacy systems, and you know, it, it, it's really difficult to go back and retrofit everything. 
you know, how, however, you know, it, it, you, if, if you even just plant a flag in the ground and say, you know, from, from here on out, this is, these are the, the design principles and this is how it's, things are going to be tested and this is how it's going to run. You know, at some point through attrition, you're going to get your entire environment onto that new platform. But it, again, it still takes commitment that, and will cost, and I, by the way, I want to say that this is a difficult thing to say, right? Because it's it may not be a truism for everyone, but on, if you continue to do things as you do them today, it will probably be more expensive. However, if you take a step back, you may actually end up, you know, kind of net zero, or or maybe you can save some money. If you re you know redesign your IT processes and development processes and whatnot, uh, you know I've 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 been I've been learning a ton about in recent time about managing extremely large environments, and uh, you know I I just don't think that a lot of organizations are completely bought into the automation and and whatnot that's possible, and I think as time goes on. And we we take some of these forcing functions like this, you know, we may end up in a in a in a position where we can end up with better, more resilient infrastructure and, and saving some money. But that's a tough. That's a really tough. But time. this goes back to the same equation and calculus we have to do with security spending: is what's good enough without overspending. This is the same problem that we run into all the time with executives. Not problem, but the same decision that leadership has to make of how much do you spend without overspending? Right. To what level makes sense? Yeah. And, and I think it's... that's where a lot of this comes down to is for very mature organizations that, that are also very profitable, they can probably more easily argue, hey, let's let's go to this level of maturity. For other organizations, there may be a very tough decision being made at the board level saying, we know we're not mature enough, but we just can't afford to spend that much of our budget on this problem. Yep, and that, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, it's a it's a risk trade off, right? I mean, it, it is it's a it comes down to the individual business. You know, if you're a if you're a local florist and you don't rely on your website very much, this is not going to make sense. But if you're Facebook or you're an online retailer or or something else. It does, and I, you know, I think the the other thing I would say, in particular, we should hopefully be learning f- from each of these things. We we have to have to ha- impart some creativity to understand the actual implications of th- these things, right? So, when when we say that we don't need our website available that much, do we really understand what that means? Right. And you know, do we really understand what it means if our you know if if, if we uh, skimp out on some security control and our data is stolen. Do we really understand what the implication of that is? Or are we surprised down the line? Yes. Or do certain low-level folks deep in the engineering ranks understand it, but perhaps can't articulate it well or don't know how to communicate it well to executives or they choose to disagree? Right. That's right. I mean, we make little choices every single day that accepts risk. And I think you're right. I don't know that we do a very good job as organizations understanding the risk we've truly accepted. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like you look at 
I don't know, just something like pen testing, where somebody in the organization say, you cannot pen test my application because it's fragile and I don't want you to take it down. Okay. So we're now balancing the risk of not taking down a production application versus not understanding security holes that may be there that a bad guy could exploit. Which risk is bigger? What's more important to the organization? There's not a perfect answer there. Right. Well, as long as it doesn't get compromised. Right. <laughs> see, that, that is, the, that is the, the fundamental problem I see happen over and over and over again. People make a risk decision, but they think that means I, – I just think there's this perverse understanding of what it means to accept a risk. Because inevitably, when that risk, you know, when, when that risk materializes, you have the people who made the decision saying, how could that possibly happen? Right. Or, yeah, it's and again, it goes back to incentives. If the person making that risk decision is measured on uptime of that application in the short term, the risk of a pen test taking that application is a higher likelihood to them than the risk of a bad guy taking down that application. Absolutely, that's right. So of course they're going to say no, don't pen test. Right. But You're then you swapping need swapping up a certainty for a or right. near certainty for whereas. No, no. Which is why it's awkward and inappropriate to have somebody at that level make that decision. Because they only care about uptime of that application in the short term. Right. So you have to get to the level in the organization where you've hopefully got executives who understand the different trade-offs of risk and are keeping them all in mind. Now, that in and of itself is a heck of an assumption. Right. You know, because then the flip side is you've got security folks who all they care about is security risk. You know, we're as guilty as that on the flip side. Right. So this, and there is no right answer. Every organization has a different calculus they have to make around this. And this is what makes us so frustrating. And by the way, who knows if we're getting it right? Yeah. yeah if, it, if it never, if the breach never materializes, were you lucky or... That that's I think that's that is, I think one of the the main uh, horizons of development for IT and IT security is is figuring out how to how to get those equations right. Yeah, I just don't think there's a great answer yet. But agreed. Anyway, moving on to our last story. This one comes from Bloomberg, and the title is Cisco Cisco's network bugs are front and center in bankruptcy fight. Yeah, I I can't. This feeds into a lot of our other discussions today too. This is a pretty wild one. Yeah, I I can't think of any other case like this. But so here here's the deal. There's a game. I think it's a like an iPhone app called Game of War Fire Age. I think I, uh, that may is that the one that that Arnold Schwarzenegger does the commercials for. <laughs> I'm not sure. Anyway, I'm not sure. I'll look it up while you're. There's a company that that game is made by a publisher named Machine Zone, and Machine Zone outsourced the back end of the game to a company called Peak Web. And uh, the, the the contract between Machine Zone and Peak Web has a pretty strict SLA of like minutes of downtime per year. Uh, and and over the course of I guess a couple of months, they were. Um, uh, Peak Web kept having you know hour long outages or so related to its uh, network equipment, and then uh, you know, so there were 
there was some unhappiness back and forth between Machine Zone and Peak Web about that. And then it culminated in a 10-hour-long uh, outage last October where uh, the, the the network, I guess it's a, a router, was uh, you know kind of pooped out. And uh, pri- prior to this, by the way, PeakWeb had been working with Cisco to try to figure out, you know, what's going on. They, they were trying to get Cisco to f- fix it, and Cisco kept saying, "Yeah, you're bothering me, kid. Go away." <laughs> and uh, and so so apparently this 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 uh, protracted outage gave the PeakWeb people enough time to actually poke at it. They they realized you know exactly what was going on. They found apparently some command was exhausting memory on the router. They reported it to Cisco, and uh, and Cisco uh, uh, shortly afterwards released a patch for that problem. However, uh, Machine Zone decided to terminate his contract with PeakWeb as a result of its inability to meet its uh, contractual uptime commitments, and and so uh, you know, of course, this is going to go into court because uh, PeakWeb says that the contract they have states that. They're not responsible for outages caused by some third party like Cisco. Uh, you know, I'm not certainly not a lawyer, but I don't understand how that would work because Cisco was not a vendor to Machine Zone; it was a vendor to PeakWeb, and so that part doesn't really make a lot of sense. But this is the first time I can think of that a you know software defect of a of a product has resulted in a uh, in this kind of a lawsuit, particularly one that led to bankruptcy. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Uh, and it, it, there's a lot of interesting takeaways for me from this. The particular switch in question was a was Cisco's Nexus 3000 model. And we are often preaching, hey, if it's not broke, don't fix it, you know, is the common mantra of network folks, uh, which <laughs> in this case kind of supports that. This was... Uh, I'm guessing some fairly new code that hadn't this problem hadn't been found in another organization yet. So that makes me wonder if you're running a, a super uptime environment, which code and product line should you be running? Should you be running relatively new code and new product line? And as I recall, Cisco actually has two release trains of their code. One is a very very stable, but one has more new features and bleeding and cutting edge. And and the Nexus 3000 line is fairly new, relatively speaking. So I, I wonder in a situation like this, are you wiser to run older, well-beaten, well-mature hardware and code in a super tight uptime environment than running something new that may have unknown problems in them? Which also con- contradicts with the concept that we always say keep everything patched because a patch could introduce something like this. Right. This is a tough problem to solve. Uh, I, I don't think it's it's fair to expect them to have a completely separate infrastructure. I don't know. I mean, they were, they were charging $4 million a month, right? But then again, I don't know how much the infrastructure costs to maintain. So they clearly had some some operating capital here, though. Yeah. But this is a tough one. If you're trying to run a really, really low downtime environment, you got to be careful. Uh, and, and wow, this one's tough. Because the way it looks like these were failing, you know, cer- certainly memory, memory exhaustion that they couldn't trace down is a really tough problem to solve. Uh, especially because, like you said, Cisco is like, well, you know, we got to duplicate before we can fix it. And it's really difficult to find the problem. So I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't know if there would have been a different infrastructure they could have built that had automatic failover, and if they knew they had a memory exhaustion, they rebooted them once a day. I, I don't know, but it's tough in this situation to run code that you don't really own. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, I I think um, we there's really no details, by the way, in in yeah. in the article about exactly what the the environment looked like, but I, I kind of walked away with, in my mind at least, the impression that you know maybe the environment wasn't completely designed in a manner that would support that high of uptime. I I don't know, right? I don't. We don't know the the specific details of, of exactly how it was designed or architected, but. Um, yeah, I agree with you, right? This is a tough. This is a tough spot. I mean, you Cisco's the market leader. You know, you you buy them expecting their stuff is gonna is, is gonna support your workload, and I'm sure those switches are not cheap, or those routers are not cheap. So no, absolutely not. But there's also a ton of different ways you can run them, and we need a lot more detail here. But right, mm. right. But the but the point though is you made a really great point, which which is. You know, you're you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't, right? You know, if you if you run older stuff that's tried and true, it's probably not being maintained, right? Uh, and and if you run the new stuff, you could end up with problems like this. So, and, you know, there are always ways to have no like point of failure. But if this was the same gear on the same code base, right? That makes it tough too. I feel for these guys. But without knowing more about their exact setup, who knows if there's something they could have done differently. Yeah. I, I just, I, I can't help but think, though, if you have that high of a of a uptime requirement, and especially if you start seeing over the course of months, if you're having problems, switch problems, or router problems, you know, I, 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 I feel like, I feel like I would have, uh, uh, acted a little more aggressively to to build in some alternative capacity or something. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I get the I get the impression, by the way, too, that not all between um, machine zone and peak web was well anyway. And so I'm I'm it, it kind of seems like peak web is saying that machine zone was using this as a way to terminate their contract. Um, for possibly for other reasons, so hard to say. But but anyway, the reason Peak Web—I don't think we said this right—the reason Peak Web is filing for bankruptcy is because uh, apparently their primary customer was this Machine Zone, and once Machine Zone canceled their contract, uh, as they allege against the the terms of the contract, they they had no choice but to file for bankruptcy. For the record, by the way, Arnold Schwarzenegger shills for a different game called Mobile Strike. Oh, okay. Well. Seems uh, seems like it was similar, but oh well. Neither of which I've played, nor do I have time for right now. Ain't nobody got time for that. Well, anyway, uh, that is the store or the show for this uh, this week. So, thanks for listening. Just a reminder that uh, Mr. Kellett and I are going to be at the O'Reilly Security Conference in New York uh, at the end of October. So from uh, October 30th through um, 
I think it's November second. Yep. There's a, a conference in New York City at the Hilton Midtown. Uh, by the way, it's it's focused on defense tactics, which is uh, kind of in line with our our podcast here. You can uh, use the 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 code security twenty to get twenty percent off. If you go to uh, I think it's conferences.oreilly.com. Um, the the CFP for the the talk talks that Mr. Khaled and I will be moderating uh, are open. These are called the Ignite Talks, and the CFP closes on September 30th. And I think so. These are these are fun, by the way. So yeah. it's it, the concept is it's five minutes. The slides auto advance every 15 seconds. So it's fast paced. It's just about anything you want to talk about, but it's kind of fun. It's, you know, a new, interesting challenge for presenting. Exactly. Should be, we'll it should be. be a lot of fun. And, we'll, and, and we're a lot of fun, right? Well, some. Some of us are. Some would say. <laughs> I don't think that's a universal decision. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> and you will be at DerbyCon, but I will not. I will be at DerbyCon. I have the, I'll have the family in tow, so that should be fun. Including... Loss of puppy? No. Oh, I don't no think, sick doggy. I don't think they allow dogs. <laughs> that would be fun, though. Don't they know who you are? That would be fun. Don't they know who she is? I, she has her own Twitter following, for gosh sake. She does. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, you can find the link to the. We'll, we'll post the link to the uh, the CFP and to where to get tickets. Um. And uh, with that, we will uh, we'll uh, we'll call it a show. And if you like the show, by the way, you can go to iTunes.com and uh, leave us some love there. And a special thanks to our Patreon donors. Thank you very much. That's keeping the lights on here. We we use just an incredible amount of bandwidth. So thank you very much for that. Indeed, thank you. That is uh, most appreciated. And um, you can visit the website to find the links, including uh, what I just mentioned for the conference, at our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kell on Twitter at Lurg. And you can follow me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And uh, I think we're we're all pretty pretty active on Twitter. So if you want to interact with us, it's a great place to do it. And with that, we will talk again, hopefully, next week. Bye-bye. Have a good week, everybody. See ya. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.